Father, knowing that our hope is not based on what we can do, but on what you have done. We breathe in our identity as your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We breathe out our inadequacies that seek to define us. Knowing that Christ is our inheritance, we breathe in the peace of our position in you. We breathe out the restless pursuit of worldly position. Spirit of God, knowing that the joy of the Lord is our strength, we breathe in the joyful preoccupation of Jesus. We breathe out the anxious preoccupation of self. Breathe in your identity. Breathe out your inadequacy. Amen. So it's a new year, and New Year's is a time when we make resolutions, we resolve to improve, to get better, to take action on something that's positive in our lives. And I love all of that. I find it meaningful. Some people are kind of cynical about that kind of stuff. But to make a resolution or to have a hope of improvement is an expression of hope. And I find that very meaningful. <clears throat> so the health clubs are fuller than normal. And the diet programs are fuller than normal. And so we're going to focus on the possibility of growing and improving in this mysterious part of Christian life, which is prayer. So today, to a certain degree, it's almost like coaching. When you go to the health club or you want to go do something for improvement, a lot of times what we do is we prioritize our engagement with it, we take action with it, and we usually will seek to learn more about it and we'll seek some coaching and some insight. And so in a way, the message this morning is kind of coaching. Anything that you want to get good at, if you really do want to get good at it, you will begin to prioritize it, focus on it, learn what you can about it, and even develop technique and skill, which may sound a little bit strange when we're talking about prayer, like technique and skill. Yep, there's a lot to be learned in this way when it comes to praying. So let me read for you from Ephesians chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul. And the content of what he's praying for is so moving and powerful. Ephesians 1, 15 to 20. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power 
for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Okay, so I'm gonna use this text as the anchor. I'm gonna do a little coaching before we focus on it. But one of the things I wanna give a little bit of attention to before I get into the coaching part, if we could go back to verse 21 on the screens for a minute. He's speaking about raising Christ and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And then he goes on to this list of far aboves. Far above, rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Here's what I like to encourage you to understand. Verse 21, he's saying far above everything. Everything's a pretty comprehensive word. It means nothing's not included. Far above everything, including yours and my circumstances. Okay, that's a little framework for reference. All right, so since we're in the coaching mode, if we're starting the new year, if you are interested in, if you want to, if you're motivated to pursue a life where you are growing sincerely as a Christian, I'm gonna suggest to you, I think there are four corners to the foundation that holds up that house, okay? Let's say it's the house of your life and you want to be growing as a Christian and there's four corners in the foundation. I'm gonna offer you what I think are the four corners. One is intentional prayer. Two is corporate worship. That means corporate meaning with the body of believers. Three is Christ-honoring service. And four is intentional Christ-centered relationships. Now, when I say that, I don't know where your life might be in those four. But I would encourage you that if you're a person who wants your life to really grow as a Christian, as a disciple, the four corners of the foundation that hold that house up, intentional prayer, corporate worship, Christ-honoring service, and intentional Christ-centered relationships. This series is gonna focus on the prayer part of that. Some of you who know the Bible and are acquainted will know this verse. It's one of the big ones. And Jesus used it as well. It's from the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 56, he says, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah is speaking on God's behalf. So God is saying, my house that is the house of my people, my name, my character, and my presence. This is one of the really significant aspects about my house. It'll be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus used that phrase himself in his teaching ministry. So as Pete said, I don't know if you've seen this, but I wanna encourage you to go back and take a look at it. You can find it on YouTube if you'd like. Last Monday night, this scary moment in the football game when DeMar Hamlin had this heart attack. And Dan Orlovsky is the ESPN analyst who's in the studio. And he's with two others. 
And Dan is commenting, you know, a lot of times in American life, we say things like our thoughts and prayers are with you, our thoughts or prayers are with you. It's kind of the scripted, expected, that's what you're supposed to say response. And then Dan goes off script. He started by saying our thoughts and prayers are with him. And then he says, and I feel led to pray right now. And like, it's this moment. This is ESPN. This is a big national, like sports fans around the world are tuned into this moment. You're almost like, really? And lo and behold, Dan Orlovsky prays for DeMar Hamlin. I was really moved by it. And here's one thing. You listen to that prayer and there is no doubt that Dan Orlovsky knows the Lord. There's no doubt. You couldn't pray and say the things he said. It was not perfunctory church blah, blah, blah praying. It was sincere, true on praying. And the other two in the studio presumably had no idea he was gonna do this. So I'm like, they're sort of implicated in his praying. <laughs> and he's like, let's pray. And they're like. <laughs> I didn't get that in journalism school. It's a really a beautiful moment. And then as Pete said, it raised this question of prayer. It's been a national conversation, at least in and out of the sports world. I also was moved by it because I think it had a small, tiny chance of making a small contribution to racial reconciliation in the country. Lamar Hamlin is an African-American guy. Dan Orlovsky is a white guy, commentator. And the sincerity of the prayer, without pretense and sincere care, was beautiful to me. Okay. Prayer, I'm gonna say something that I know what it means and I have no idea what it means. Prayer is an invitation to intimacy with the Lord of all. I know what that means, but like actually moving into an understanding and the deepest place of that, here's how I know what it means and I don't know what it means. I know what it means and that is one part of what contributes to my prayer life. Here's how I know I don't know what it means. I don't pray nearly as much as I would if I was deeply aware of that. So as we're talking about prayer, here's one of the risks. One of the risks would be that we who teach the series are like prayer experts and you're thinking these guys are like prayer experts, unbelievable. Well, not so much, but we wanna grow in this area as well. So it's an invitation for all of us to grow together and we've got some little threads of that today. But I had this thought, human beings are unique in the entirety of creation, no other living thing prays. We do a lot of things that other living things do. We breathe and so does your dog breathe. And we smile and we, we do lots of things that other living things do, but no other living thing aside from human beings prays. This is clearly a distinct privilege that God is inviting us into as human beings. That gets my attention. I wanna start with two coaching thoughts. Every one of us who's a Christian needs a fraud department inside of us because religious life has so much temptation to fraudulence, to look like I'm something I'm not, 
to appear to be something I'm not. And in reality, I think the head of the fraud department is the Holy Spirit, who will whisper to us, hey dude, you're saying something and you know it's not the way it actually is with you. If we listen to the chairman of the fraud department, but every Christian needs a fraud department. And prayer is a place where we may be more inclined than some other places to be fraudulent. To sound in certain ways that are not really true to what's actually the reality of my inner life with God. Okay, so in this whole realm, to begin to grow in richness in prayer, we've got to address a couple of the sort of mistakes that we're prone to make. And the first one is, we don't take God seriously. Now, here's what I mean. When I use the word serious, it's hard for me to manage this definition. We, we don't engage with God as real. We do something strange. And this is why prayer is sort of mysterious. We do this thing with God that's kind of different and not like we do in, quote, normal life. And I think one of the reasons for this, ready? We've done something like this. Many of us have this, and I've got my own grown to do with this. God is an imaginary reality to us. That's a strange combination of words. Is he imaginary or is he real? The fact of the matter is for most of us, both. He's an imaginary reality. If there was no imaginary and it was pure, true reality, I just know we'd be different in the way we engage God. I would be different in the way I engage God. Now, he is real, and I think if you pray, you've got enough of a real factor, that's why you're praying. That's why I'm praying. But at the same time, we've got this big imaginary factor. So let me offer a story a friend shared with me recently. Taking God seriously means he is who he says he is. What we say is true of who he is. And the fact of the matter is, for many of us, we would say, do you believe all of this about God? And our answer is yes. <laughs> and that's part of the imaginary reality thing. So what we're trying to do is grow more on the reality side. Okay, so Padraig Otama is an Irish poet. And he writes a story about being in church one Sunday. And he's a Roman Catholic, and I'm gonna have to go down just for a moment on some teaching about the sacrament of communion. In the Roman Catholic Church, the teaching is that once the elements, the wine and the bread, are consecrated by the priest, they actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Actually, physically, actually, the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, I have great respect for ecumenical stuff in the Christian world, a Protestant view would believe that the elements make Jesus spiritually present by the presence of the Holy Spirit, okay? But not actually, not saying that the bread and the wine actually become Jesus' body. All right, that's down a little bit of wormhole, but it's important. So Padre's in church and there's a woman sitting in the pew in front of him. She has a young boy in his arms, in her arms. And I don't know, four or five years old, and Padraig is sort of, the boy doesn't seem to be paying attention, 
And the priest just decides to give a little teaching on the, the Roman Catholic view of the actual presence of Jesus. And so the priest says, so this means Jesus is actually present. And then he's doing priestly things up front. And the little kid in front of Padraig yells out, hello, Jesus. <laughs> okay, now, think for a moment. That is the sanest thing anyone in that sanctuary could say if you hold that belief system. It's the most true theological statement that could have been made in that whole room. And the priest is up front, and he's got all his priestly garb on, and the kid is the one who makes the absolutely true spiritual statement. The point being, if Jesus is physically and actually here, then hello Jesus is absolutely the right thing to say. The point of the story is, we go to church and we hear the priest say blah, 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 and then we do, we go through the motions, and it's all a kind of imaginary reality. So, Padre Gautama writes about this, and he says, when the kid yelled out, hello, Jesus, he says, it was a moment of delight, but the priest looked shocked, blank, as if Jesus had turned up in the actual flesh and bone. Shut the child up, you could hear in the fear. Theologically, of course, the child was deliciously correct. The woman holding the small boy looked mildly embarrassed, but mostly thrilled. I cannot remember anything else from that mass apart from the warm welcome of a small child who took the story seriously. The small child whose words of welcome were the surprise of praise among the otherwise predictable. The child is taking God seriously. I don't mean a dour, serious God. I mean he's treating God as real. And the priest was really surprised. <laughs> okay, I think you can enter this space with me a little bit. So... Wherever you may be in your faith or your Christian life, the longer you're a Christian, the more the risk of this fraud becomes part of the risk of our Christian lives. That we have an appearance on the outside, a certain shell that we project that's an appearance of our Christian life, but, but it's kind of vacant inside. There's not a core foundational content that makes the inside and the outside match up. And... It makes me think of Matthew chapter six when Jesus was teaching about prayer. He says, when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret, okay? In other words, if you only pray in public, you're at risk of being a fraud. If you don't have prayer that happens in private that nobody sees, you're at risk of being a fraud. Jesus had a really strong fraud sniffer. And it's not that praying in public or out loud in front of other people is a bad thing to do. Great, in the right way, in the right settings. But what he's saying is, when you pray, go into your private room where nobody knows you're there, nobody sees you're there. You don't have to tell everybody, hey, I'm going in to pray for an hour now. I'll be back out in about an hour. 
Maybe an hour and 15 if I'm really grooving. Just go in your private room, shut your door and pray. Now here's the power of the statement that really gets my attention. To your father who is in secret, but then look what he says next. And your father who sees what is in secret will reward you. See, this begins to really stretch our muscles about do we trust that God is real? Your father who sees what is in secret will reward you. Okay, if we just take that phrase and expand it to a lot of parts of our life as Christians, it has so many implications. Do we believe that God is real? That's gonna be the first question because you wouldn't believe that your father sees what's done in secret if you didn't believe that he was real. But one way we actually begin to know that we're growing to believe that he's real is that we are growing to be fine to do things in secret and we trust that God knows. And I don't have to get known for it. I don't have to get attention for it. And I don't have to people say, wow, way to go. What a great Christian. Send you a thank you note. You trust that God knows what is done in secret. He rewards it. This would change, I think, our praying. I think it probably would change our financial giving because we would be happy to do stuff that's known to nobody, but we absolutely believe that God is real and that he knows what we're doing in secret. And that's a beautiful thing for us. That's enough for us. That's when God's getting real in our lives. So when I read Matthew 6, 6, and Jesus says, when you pray, go into your private room, what I think he's saying is, and begin to grow in a relationship with God where he is real. But that's a growth invitation for us. All right, next one I want to talk about. So the first one is taking God seriously, or I suppose the error that we're prone to, I'm in this too, is not taking God seriously. Treating him as some kind of imaginary reality. Second one is giving it to God. Okay, I've said this, how, who knows how many thousands of times in my Christian life. And so God, I give this to you. You name it. Whatever the thought, the idea, the concern, the fear, God, I'm giving this to you. Okay? Presumably, if I gave it to him, then I wouldn't continue holding on to it. You know how sometimes when you have something that's kind of valuable and you want to show it to somebody, and you say, hey, look at this, and they're like, are you giving it to me? You're like, no, I'm just showing it to you. I'm not giving it to you, I'm just showing it to you. Here's one thing, trying to get at the fraud department in my own life. Elizabeth, my wife, and I were talking about this this past week. How often we say to God, I'm giving it to you, when in fact what we mean is I'm showing it to you. So here is this concern, God, this thing I've been praying about, it's heavy on my heart. And I say I'm giving it to you, but I'm like, I'm not giving it to you. I'll show it to you. God, let's look at it together. And here's where I imagine God might say, great, what would you like me to do with that? Well, I want you to make it all go the way I want it to go while I hold on to the control. Okay, so you don't want to give it to me. Well, theoretically, I do want to give it to you because it's a burden when I keep holding on to it, but I'm afraid to give it to you. All right, now we're getting somewhere. Okay, so let's just go here together. So imagine God speaking to me, but you can put your name in it. Why are you afraid to give it to me? Because I'm afraid if I give it to you, it won't go the way I want it to go. Okay, great. Now we're getting honest. Now this is the terrain where I think God gets excited. 
okay, why are you afraid that if you give it to me, it won't go the way you want it to go? Because I have a pretty good sense of how I want it to go, and I'm not sure it's going to go there if I leave it with you. Ready for the next question? Well, David, do you, do you trust me? Well, probably not. Probably not. Because if I trusted you, I would give it to you. So have you ever wondered this in your life with God or in your praying? This is on the one hand a meaningful index. On the other hand, it's kind of a fool's errand. But nonetheless, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you trust God? Scale of one to 10, how much do you trust him? Trust him, trust him. Well, how would I know how much I trust him? Well, there's a lot of little indicators that come along in life. Probably the more I pray, the more I trust him. But it's real easy to think my number is at a certain level and then something, along, something comes along in life and then I realize, whoa, I was nowhere near as far on that trust scale as I thought I was. So let's agree to this. If, if you're a person who's ready to agree to it, we just want our number to grow. We just want to get higher on the continuum. But even if I say that, if we're honest, some of us have to say, I'm not sure I do want that number to grow. Because that means you're asking me to give up stuff that I'm holding on to. So here's my own journey with it. So David, how's that holding on to it going? Is it life-giving for you? Is it giving you freedom and joy? No. Okay, are you able to take action and bring about the change that you hope for? Well, for most of us, these categories we're talking about are categories that we're not really able to change very much. And believe me, a lot of us have tried. So we say, God, I'm giving this to you, when in fact what we're doing is showing it to him again. Sometimes we're afraid to give something to God because we're afraid that, I don't know, I would neglect the thing if I just gave it to you right? If you're anxious or worried about your finances and you think, God, I'm going to give you my concerns about my finances, we're like concerned, like God could say, okay, you don't have to worry about that anymore. But there's a weird little thing in us that says, but I, but I, I want to worry about it. Like, I don't want to not worry about it. Like, I need to be focused on it. So we get in this strange cycle and we're afraid to let go of it for any number of reasons, and those reasons are vast. Let's say it's your children. You say, God, I leave them with you to care for and love them and help shape their lives. Some people would say, I'm afraid if I do that that I don't know, I'll neglect them or I won't have them in the place in my life that I want them. You see how this gets interesting. Some of us have embraced a particular batch of concerns as who we are. And if we gave up those concerns, we're afraid I wouldn't know who I am. I don't think I would know, I'd lose myself if I gave up those concerns. Okay, so this is just an invitation for all of us to kind of grow into this together. So here's the next part. You'll notice, here's a limitation. Under your chair, there should be some index cards. They're colorful index cards. Maybe you've seen one. I was thinking about this and I'm like, how do we help each other with this? How do we encourage each other with this? And here's what the invitation is. If you've got a fill in the blank for God, I give you, you name it. 
my finances, my relationships, my marriage, my kids, my addictions, my concern about X, Y, or Z. And you know that you want to give it to God, but you know actually you're, you're never giving it to him, you're just showing it to him. The invitation would be to write one or two or three or a hundred of those words on this little index card. And we're gonna invite you, you can either leave it on your chair when you leave or take it out with you in the concourse. You'll see there's strands with little clips on them out there from the eight o'clock service. We're just gonna invite you to take it out there and clip it on the strands. I didn't assume that people would put their names to these, but honestly, I thought some people would say, it's actually gonna be helpful to me if I put my name to it, own it, put my name to it. So if you wanna put your name to it, go for it. If you wanna just put your first name to it, go for it. I didn't envision it as having names with it, so do whatever you want. I think God could do something beautiful when we start seeing these things that we're all putting up there. I think God could lead us as a church to grow against the fraud and into the honesty of our lives with him. Eugene Peterson, so you're invited to do that. You write it now, write it whenever, and take it out. You can put it on the strands out there with little clips, or you can leave it on your chair and somebody will take it out there for you. Prayer is a subversive activity, says Eugene Peterson, and it involves a more or less open act of defiance against any claim of the current regime. Okay, I find the current regime language kind of awkward, from what I know of Eugene Peterson's writing, let me, let me offer it to you this way. Prayer is a subversive activity. It involves a more or less open act of defiance against any circumstance in our lives. Against any circumstance. As we pray, slowly but surely, not culture, not family, not government, not job, not even the tyrannous self can stand against the quiet power and creative influence of God's sovereignty. All right, that's a little chewy, but here's what I think he's saying. Either our circumstances are the biggest, highest thing in our lives, or God is. And what happens in our prayer lives is, whether we knew it or not, we actually create a face-off between our circumstances and God. And when we pray about our circumstances to God, but they don't change, and that makes us chuck our faith or jettison God, what we've actually done, whether we knew it or not, is made our circumstances our highest. They are God. Our circumstances then will be how we are defined. They will be how we live and see our lives. They will begin to identify us and we will embrace our circumstances saying who we are. But if our circumstances are just that and God is God, then God defines who we are. And God defines our lives. Our circumstances don't because we've made God the highest. Okay, now I know this is part of the crucible and the challenge of our lives together because we want circumstances to change. We're praying for them, they're not changing. So we're like, we're gonna dethrone God and when we do, we'll make the circumstances our highest, aka they become God. It's a hard way to live though when our circumstances are God. Our circumstances will whisper a lot of false voices to us about who we are, about life, about our identity, about hope, about the future. So the question there is, am I gonna be defined by God as the highest or by my circumstances? Growing to trust God with my circumstances, even when there's a bunch that I really, really don't like, 
means God is God, my circumstances are right-sized and right-placed, and I am defined for who I am and what my life is by God, not by my circumstances. All right, let me close with this. Two main types of praying. Petitional praying, which is asking for something. One way or another, however we get there. And that's a good thing. God tells us, ask, ask. So that's a good thing. If the only way we pray is asking prayers, this is going to create a crucible of trust. Because if that's the only way we pray, we're not really cultivating a deep, intimate, knowledge-knowing relationship with God. We're just going to him as the cosmic vending machine. And when things don't work out, if it's a God we don't really know, then we're going to be faced with the crisis of trust. Okay, you know this, right? You only really trust a person you really know. So we won't ever really trust God if we don't really know him. So the second kind of praying is what I'll call devotional praying, dwelling praying. We are dwelling in his presence that we would know him better. And this is devotional and relational praying. You're not asking for anything. And I think, I feel confident that if we are really growing in our life with him, our devotional praying is growing, growing, growing. And even maybe because that becomes the beauty of our relationship with God, our asking praying actually begins to get smaller because we're relating with God in such a different way now. So our relationship with God is not purely, God, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you solve this? Can you fix this? Can you change this? But we actually have a growing intimate relationship with him. And that will change our ability to ask him. Because the more we get to know him, that's where the possibility is of trusting him. And the more we trust him, then we will grow slowly over time to be able to trust him even with the circumstances that don't seem to be changing or getting better or going the way I want them to. So let me close. A quick look at the Ephesians text. I wish we had two hours because it's so beautiful. It is so beautiful. Verse 17. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, a glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So what? So you may know him better. And that's going to be the one that precedes the rest of the stuff he's asking for. So that you may know him better. And the more you know him, then we go on to verse 18, that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power. But it all starts with knowing him. And the knowing him grows in this kind of devotional, relational praying. The hope, the inheritance, and the power. Okay, I can't resist. It's so dumb, but I can't resist, right? H-I-P. The hope, the inheritance, and the power. Like, it's just like right there. Like, be a hip Christian. It's just, <laughs> it's waiting for someone to say it. And the hope, the inheritance, and the power in Christ will lift our lives above everything. So we are no longer living lives where our circumstances are just grinding our lives down. And note the hope, the inheritance, and the power. All of it is elevated living. 
Long time ago when there was like radio preachers and these classic old timey guys, their radio shows would be called stuff like Power for Living and Victorious Christian Living. I haven't seen anything new like that come out in decades and it's missing. It's missing from our Christian lives. This invitation and this promise of the hope, the inheritance and the power that we have in Christ. And how do we begin to experience that? It comes from knowing him better. And prayer is a beautiful invitation to that. All right, let me close with this quote. It's one of my favorites. Brandon Manning says, it's only the wisdom and the perspective gleaned from an hour of silent prayer each morning that prevents me from running for CEO of the universe. <laughs> Lord God, we, we just wanna grow. Would you help us break through the glass ceilings, the false and fraudulent things that are just part of our life with you? And probably, Lord, I think a lot of it just got there not that we intended it to be, but it's just accumulated barnacles. And so, Lord, would you help us come to this beautiful, honest place of this transparent, growing knowledge and love with you. And we pray for each other in this way, Lord. For your glory, Jesus Christ, amen.